Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, uh, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online and also our friends in Arco, Idaho, and the Hangar in Montana, and also at Purpose Church Rancho Cucamongo. We are so glad uh, that you are joining us for our study of God's Word. And as you're turning, let me just share how God has been working through Purpose Church all over the place. It's just amazing how your faithful giving and your praying and your serving and your involvement is making such a difference. Uh, just within the last 10 days, uh, last Thursday, there were four, within the last 10 days, four people baptized at the at Claremont campus at the flood service there. Uh, three baptized last Sunday at the hangar in Montana. Four are being baptized this morning in Arco, Idaho, and four plus are being uh, baptized here at the end of the 11-11 service. Maybe you want to be one of those. There are four people scheduled to be baptized, but maybe you're not here by accident, but you say, this could be my day. And so just after the end of the message at 11-11, I'll call forward anybody that wants to be baptized, and we're going to do baptisms at the end of the 11-11 service. And you can join those 15 people from three different states and four different locations that are following Jesus in baptism over the last few days here uh, through the ministry uh, of our church. I just praise God for you all. And we want to keep that going. That's what we are all about. That's the mission, helping people to find their purpose in Christ, in community, for the journey. And so would you pull out that card that says 8 to 15 that is there in your program. And uh, your assignment from God, your purpose is to go to heaven and to take the 8 to 15 people that are closest to you and your sphere of influence, to take them with you. And so what I want you to do is I want you to make a list on the back of who are the 8 to 15. The Greek word uh, for household is oikos. It means the 8 to 15 people that you work with, go to school with, in your family. And we want to strategically use the next four to six weeks are the best season of the year for connecting your family and friends with Jesus. Uh, four weeks from this weekend is come celebrate Christmas. Journey to Bethlehem, as you've already heard about. Uh, six weeks from now is, is Christmas, or minus a couple of days, two or three days, is Christmas Eve services. All the Christmas Sunday services, the, the, the worship services throughout this time of the year are a great time to invite uh, family and friends and to write them down. And you know, yesterday I sat down, I tried to write only people in my sphere of influence that are not followers of Jesus. And that's harder to do because as the years go by, you make more and more of your closest relationships are fellow Christ followers. But I could come up with about 12 or 13 people that are not now following Jesus. And I put them on my list and I'm going to be praying for those. I invite you to pray for those every day and ask God strategically, how can you use me to invite them to one of the Christmas events so they can connect with the Christ of Christmas because that is why he came. And that's what our church is all about. That's what we're up to. And that's what we want to strategically do in the week's head. I always say this every year, but Satan's plan for your life is to get you so busy with food and decorations and parties, which are all wonderful, and I love all of them, but to get us so busy that we don't do the main thing we should be doing to celebrate Christ's birth, which is influencing our 8 to 15 to go to heaven with us. God's purpose in your life is for you to go to heaven and to take everybody on that list uh, with you as well, and I encourage, uh, encourage you to do that. Now, as we get into our new series, The Blessed Life. There are a couple of books I'd love for you to read. One of 
them or both of them in, in alignment with what I'm teaching here uh, today. Uh, one of them is the treasure principle. How many of you have read the treasure principle? We have pushed this for years here at our church. It is one of the most, uh, probably one of the five most influential books in my life. This little booklet, it's one of those little tiny books like Prayer of Jabez. You can read it in about an hour. This little book changed my life. And so I am on a mission to have everybody in our church read this at least once. And so if you have never read it, they're available at the Resource Center. Now, the cost to the church is $8 for this and $12 for the one that I'm going to talk about in a minute. But don't even worry about that. If you can afford it, fine. But if you can't, I want everybody to have this. So just take it. If you don't have any money on your day, just take it for free. And, and Kimberly and I will make up the difference. And I'm serious on that. We'll make up the difference of any shortfall that we have. I haven't talked this over with her yet, but I'm sure she'll agree with me. And, and, and we will make up the difference because I just want you to have it. I, don't, I could care less if you can pay for it. I could just do what you can or do nothing at all. But this one uh, is eight. If you've already read The Treasure Principle, here's another book. Uh, the series is based on called The Blessed Life. And everybody's been talking to me about The Blessed Life. Uh, a bunch of my pastor friends said it's life-changing. Uh, a bunch of people within the church have said this to me. It was given to me by somebody within our church. And I tell you, it is changing my life, just like The Treasure Principle. This thing is unbelievable. Now, I want to mention something. Hang with it until you get to chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, it's going to balance out a little bit on the motivation of giving, which is what we're going to talk about here today. And so in the first few chapters... It's a little bit out there, and it's going to stretch your comfort zone. So hang with me when you get this book. If you've already read The Treasure Principle, get a hold of this one, and hang with me through chapter 6, and then the whole message balances out. But just awesome, awesome, life-changing book. I encourage you to get a hold of those. But today, we want to start with the motivation uh, for giving. It takes a change of heart. And our theme verse is Luke 6, verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, when we see that verse in the Bible, we tend to think it's just about money. But actually, if you look at it in context, it is about every area of our lives. And that is this biblical principle. If you want more of something, give some of that thing away, and you will get more of that back once again. That's a biblical principle in, in all areas of the Christian life. Uh, let me give you some context. Let's back up a couple of verses. Jesus said, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you'll not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And so Jesus said, if you want mercy, give away mercy. If you don't want to be judged, don't judge. If you don't want to be condemned, don't condemn. If you want forgiveness, give away forgiveness. Uh, if you want understanding, give understanding. If you want love, give love. If you want patience, give patience. And if you want God to bless you financially, give away to God's work in the local church of, of your finances. Whatever you want more of, give some of what you have away, and God will give that back to you and then some. And so that's a biblical principle, not just in the area of finances, but all areas of the Christian life. Now, why Jesus talked about finances and possessions more than any other subject, more than uh, heaven, hell, anything else, more than anything else he talked about this subject is because he knows if we can learn and apply the principle in this area, we can apply it in any area. He knows this is the linchpin. This is the, this is the, the one that if you can do it in this area, you can trust him in this area, the others will come naturally. Now, the backdrop to this is some instructions in the Old Testament. 
And they gave instructions to the Israelites, agrarian society, agricultural society, that when they harvested their field, they were not to harvest all the way to the edges or all the way to the corners of the field. But they were to not just get everything they could out of that field, but leave the corners and the edges for the poor to come with their baskets uh, for their survival. It was kind of a built-in social safety net for uh, the nation of Israel. And so there'd be two types of harvesters in the harvest field. And one group would be paid, they would be the workers paid by the owner of the field by the hour. And so they didn't care how full they got their baskets. As long as they put their hours in, they got paid. So they'd fill it as much as they could, go put it on the pile, fill it as much as they could, go put it on the pile. But they weren't that intense about how full their basket was. Now the other group, it was a life or death matter. Their survival, they may have come from miles away to this particular field. From miles away, they come. And so it is the life and death. It is a matter of survival how full they get their basket. Because this is their only trip of the day. They've only got one basket. They've come from miles. They've got to fill it up, and they've got to take it back home. And so what they would do is they would fill it up to the top with good measure. Uh, They would then press it down. Then they would shake it to get the air pockets out. And then they would pour it in until it was running over. Because for them, it was a matter of survival for them and for their family. And so when Jesus says this, he says, give and it'll be given to you. Not just any old basket, but a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured uh, to you. Okay, it's a lot like an apple seed. I'd forgotten how little an apple uh, was. I was writing this at my desk, and I'm, where am I going to get an apple seed? And then I realized I'd just eaten an apple, so I dug through the trash and pulled out the apple, and uh, there were, lo and behold, some seeds in it. I'm glad, I, I guess, are there seedless apples? I don't know that there are, but this one had seeds in it. And look how tiny that, I'd forgotten how tiny an apple seed is. But if you plant this, you don't just get another apple seed, do you? You get an apple tree that bears apples and fruit for years to come. And so you put that very little tiny seed, that apple seed in the ground, and lo and behold, you get so much more blessing when that tree comes up and when it provides fruit uh, on a regular basis. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, let me just, why I'm, I'm starting with motivation is because this works in such a powerful way. This is such a powerful principle that it is a huge temptation to begin to give in order to get. Because you do get as a byproduct when you give. That's not, that's a byproduct, but it's, it's a reward, but it's not meant to be the motivation. Kimberly and I have practiced this in our own lives for over 40 years and now for over 32 years as husband and wife. It's just been a natural part of our lives for years. And, and the thing is, when you kind of learn it early, uh, when you're young in your teens and 20s, then it's an easy thing to do in your 30s, 40s, and 50s and beyond. Um, and I have to admit, we're to the point now where it's not by faith that we give at all. Okay, we would be petrified not to give the tithe, the first 10% of our income uh, to the local church. We, we would be petrified not to do that. Okay, I mean, I, I, we've just realized that 90% with God's blessing on it goes so much further than 100% without God's blessing on it, or as either Robin Morris would say, maybe even God's curse on it. 
So 100% with God's curse on it just, does a, it just is a terribly scary way to live your life as opposed to 90% with God's uh, blessing on it. I mean, you, every time you talk to a tither, they'll say to you this testimony, we are so blessed. And every time you talk to a non-tither, you'll hear this, I can't afford to tithe. That's what you always hear. You talk to a non-tither, I can't afford to tithe. Every time you talk to a tither, they'll say, uh, I, we, are, we are so blessed. And this thing works in such an incredible way. I mean, Kimberly and I have just, it's just felt the wind of God at our back for our entire married life with our marriage and our kids and, 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 and resources, but in ministry and spiritual effectiveness, we've just felt this thing so powerfully that over time, it does become a temptation to have the wrong motivation to give, to get, uh, rather than giving to imitate God because he's a giver, to imitate Christ because he's a giver, uh, to do it out of love and gratitude out of Jesus for all that he has done for us. Robert Morris writes, and he's talking about what's called the health and wealth gospel, uh, which is you give in order to become healthy and wealthy all the time. And that may have a chance of working in America, but in Bangladesh, it's a tougher sell, okay? And he says this, how must God feel when his people get excited about giving toward his kingdom purposes, when they are whipped into a frenzy through get-rich-quick promises, okay? God doesn't want us to catch a vision of getting. He doesn't want us to catch a vision of, whoa, if I trust God and show God how much faith I have, he's going to give me all this great stuff. He doesn't want us to catch a vision of getting. He wants us to catch a vision of giving and the blessed life that comes as a byproduct of that. Motives are everything. Proverbs 16, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. James 4, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You have the wrong motives that you may get so that you can spend what you get on your pleasures. Now let's get some even more context. What we're doing here is we're looking at that one little verse, then we're pulling back a little bit for more context, and then back further for more context, and then we're going to go even further back to the Old Testament in just a moment. Let's go six verses back. Uh, Luke 6, verse 30. Give to everyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked." You see, the reward is not the motivation. It's merely the byproduct. I mean, I've, I've found in my life that every time you chase happiness, it always is like two inches beyond your grasp. But whenever, instead of chasing happiness, you seek to serve other people and to serve God and to be generous to other people and generous to God and you, and you seek to live a life of gratitude and service and giving and loving others, all of a sudden, you know what happens? Happiness comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, here I am. Here I am. You run after it. Jesus said, if you try to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it once again. And that's the biblical principle in all areas of life that, that God is teaching us here in this passage. Um, we, we give money 
Uh, we give love. We give mercy. Um, and we do it because we want to be imitators of God, and he's a giver, and so we want to be like him, and we want to be imitators of Christ, and we want to do it uh, because it's the right thing to do and to help other people and with grateful hearts. And as a natural byproduct, oh, by the way, he blesses us in the process, and we experience the blessed life. Let's go back to the Old Testament again. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you for six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 9. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, as parents and as grandparents, you're so proud of your children or grandchildren when they're unselfish, aren't you? When you see them being generous and, and you're a little bit embarrassed when they're selfish and, and, and when they're kind of self-centered. Uh, we're a little embarrassed by that, but we are so blessed. We are so happy when our children are generous and unselfish. And God's the same way with us, his children. He is so blessed when he sees his children having open, generous hearts. He is blessed and he blesses us as well. But we still have so much work to do in this area because it does not come naturally, does it? doesn't come naturally from me. I'm always amazed as the years go by just how selfish I really am. I mean, boy, I just, I find new corners of my heart and new altars of selfishness in my heart all the time. They, they kind of come to the surface uh, much of, of, of the time, like a goldsmith kind of uh, doing the gold. Uh, Jim Walden last uh, Sunday night uh, spoke at Claremont, and he talked about that whole gold process where the impurities come to the top, and the goldsmith skims them off, and the impurities come to the top. And finally, when, when you can see the reflection of the goldsmith in the gold, that's when you know it's pure. And I tell you, it just seems like I'm always finding new impurities and how selfish my heart is. And it's so hard to have the reflection of Jesus uh, in my selfish heart. And so this Deuteronomy passage warns us against the selfish heart where we think to ourselves or Satan whispers in our ear, don't give that because you want that for yourself. Or what if you give that away, you won't have enough for you. Or God won't provide for you. If you give for that, God won't provide uh, for you if you give that away. And, and Moses talks about this here in verse 9. Be careful not to harbor this thought. And he puts an adjective in, in front of that thought. And you know, uh, selfishness is one of those nickel and dime sins. We tend to think gossip, slander, 
selfishness, nickel and dime sins, adultery, murder, bad sins, big sins. But these are nickel and dime sins. But what does he call, do, be careful not to harbor, what kind of thought? He calls it a wicked thought. He says that my selfishness in his eyes is a wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near. See, you could make a strategic decision. You could say, you know what? We're about to have the year when we cancel all debts, and we're in year six or year six and a half, so I'm not going to help out that person because, after all, the debts are all canceled at the end of seven years, so I'm not going to help them. It's near, so you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. A little bit of a sidebar here. Um, this is such a great economic system that we find here in Deuteronomy. It's, a, it's amazing. It's never been tried. Even the nation of Israel never fully put this into practice, okay? And it's never been tried there or even elsewhere. But what, I mean, it combines the best elements of capitalism and socialism. Uh, in that every seven years, you could be a hardcore capitalist for seven years, earn all that you can, but at the end of seven years, all the debts were canceled. And, and it's kind of like, how many of you have ever played Monopoly? How many of you have ever played Monopoly? Okay, there, after an hour, one person is having fun playing Monopoly, right? <laughs> okay. After an hour, it is so clear who's going to win this thing. And it's one person. And, and, and yet, you've got to go through the agony of another one and a half hours until you bleed gradually, until you collapse, you know, into bankruptcy. And remember, when, you, when you're kids, but we even do this as adults, the one that's winning, if you try to quit, you quitter. You're just a quitter. And you come up with every reason to get out of that game. You know, oh, I think I got to go wash my hair. You know, and I, I, you just, you come up with every reason. And it's just agony for everybody else. Now, can you imagine a Monopoly game where every seven turns around the board, you get to keep the money you've earned, but all the land goes back and the debts are canceled once again. That would keep your interest in the game, wouldn't it? And so this economic plan is wonderful because it's got the motivational hard work element of capitalism without the crushing inequity between rich and poor generational disparity that accumulates over time. It is a wonderful economic system that's never been tried. I'm thinking of running for president, and this will be my economic plan right, right there. Okay, so, so he guards us against the selfish heart. Joshua 1 verse 8, keep this book of the law, the Bible, always on your lips Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Now, does the promise come from just reading this book? No. Does it come from even meditating on the Bible? No. You read it and you meditate so that you might do it. And it is in the doing of it that you become prosperous and successful. Uh, Jim Walden Jay's brother spoke at the men's retreat uh, last week, and he told a story, supposedly a true story. He had a friend of his who was the owner of a Christian bookstore. And he said, um, what's the biggest problem you have as an owner of a Christian bookstore? And he said, shoplifting. And he said, are you kidding me? And he says, yeah, it's the biggest problem. And, and he says, and you'll never believe what the biggest item shoplifted is. And, well, we all thought, we, everybody in the room thought, Bibles. No, it's not a Bible. It's, what would Jesus do bracelets? That is like wrong on so many levels, you know. And so it's not about just reading it. It's not about meditating on it. It's about doing it, putting it into action. But boy, I tell you, I was just born selfish ever since 
I wanted my needs met right now and kept my mother awake all night, into junior high, into high school, into adulthood. And, and here's the beautiful thing I find about giving, is that it breaks the stranglehold of selfishness within my heart. It's God's way of breaking the tyranny of selfishness that robs me of so much joy and so much blessedness. And that's why God prescribes it, why he talks about it more than any other subject in the Bible, because he knows therein we find freedom. And we as Americans need it the most of all because we are the richest of all people in history. Now, if I were to ask how many people here see themselves as rich, you know, I, I mean, uh, unless you know where I'm going with this, you, you know, that. nobody thinks they're rich, okay? But um, Pastor Brian, he's been speaking on this at Flood and on Thursday nights. And uh, boy, I just love this. Our young adult pastor, Brian's speaking on this at the same time I am. At the same time, Pastor Eric is speaking on it in high school. Because like I said, it's so much easier if you learn it early. Um, it's, it's so much more natural to carry it on. It's, it's more of a faith step, I understand. But better blessing on the second half of your life, even if you missed it on the first half. And better to be blessed the last two years of your life, even if you missed it the other parts. Okay, at any point, it... it Take the step of faith, okay? But if you start early, it's not a step of faith at all. It's just a spiritual discipline, a spiritual habit that becomes natural and be like brushing your teeth. You'd feel weird if you didn't do it. And so Pastor Brian told me this stat the other day. He said, if, if you have a household income, total household income of between $44,000 and $48,000, 44 to $40,000, total combined household income, um, you, you are among the upper 1% of the wage earners in the world today. You know, we always talk about those, one, those nasty one percenters, you know. We are the 1%. If our combined income, family income, combined income in our family unit is between 44 and 40, and even if you're not to the 44,000 level, you're probably in the upper 2% of the world's wage earners. Just think of that. And you think, well, we must be incredibly generous. Not necessarily. Uh, they've done a study, and around the world, um, the average Christian follower of Christ uh, gives away 1.8% of their income uh, to, to all charitable causes, okay, and to, to church, to their local church, 1.8%, okay. And, and when you read that, you say, oh, well, that must be all the poor countries. You know, the vast majority of Christians now live in poor countries, you know, you know, parts of South America and Asia and Africa. The vast majority of Christians now are poor. And so you're saying, well, they, they bring down the average. Nope, they don't. They actually bring up the average. Average Christian around the world, 1.8%. Average American Christian, 1.7%. So the poor of the world that are followers of Christ actually bring up the average from the typical follower of Christ in America. And it's why we need this so much more than anybody else. Because the more you have, the more tempting it is to think that that's the answer to life. And that the more we have, the more we think if we just get more, then we will achieve for ourselves the blessed life. He warns us against the grudging heart. Verse 10, give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Selfishness attacks me before I give. Okay? That, uh, it, it keeps me from wanting to give. But he's talking about giver's regret. You ever have buyer's regret? You ever buy a house or a car and think, what have I done the next day when you wake up? 
You know, every, every person that sells, a salesperson of big items knows what buyer's regret is. Well, some people have giver's regret. What have I done? How are my needs going to be met now? How did Glenn talk me into that crazy thing, you know, of tithing? And, and grudging attacks us after we give. Selfishness attacks us before we give to keep us from doing it. Grudging attacks us afterwards to make us resentful that we have done this or, 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 or disappointed that we've done it. I remember hearing a story of a Christian businessman, very successful, very generous to the cause of Christ in the late 1800s. But back then, you didn't have insurance. And so what you did is he had everything, all of his assets, almost all of them were in real estate in Chicago. And then came the great Chicago fire and burned it all to the ground. And somebody said to him, boy, I bet now you regret what you gave away. He said, are you kidding me? That's the only thing I have left. He said, if I had held on to that, it would just be another building on the skyline of Chicago and would have been burned along with all, all the rest. All I have is what I give. And you know, as the years go by and I get older, I begin to get a glimpse of what it's going to be like to come to the end of life and to be in heaven. And that is, when I look back, I'm in my 50s, and when I look back, uh, there's not a scintilla uh, within me that, that wishes I had more stuff in my 20s, 30s, and 40s. There is nothing within me that wishes I'd taken more cool vacations or seen more exotic spots around the world. Nothing within me. But I take deep satisfaction, Kimberly and I do, in the Christian ministries and the churches that have been, you know, built and their ministries and, and how those things have, have flourished through the years and people that have come to Christ. There's huge satisfaction. I think, boy, what I'm feeling a little bit now, it's going to be what I'm going to feel 100% at the end of my life. When I, one moment in heaven, there won't be a thing within us that wishes we had had more stuff when we are on this earth or visited more exciting places or done more fun trips or, or, or played more games of golf. or whatever. There's not a thing within us that's going to wish we did that. And everything within us will say, how have I invested for eternity? I love Pastor Eric, our high school pastors, like I said, been teaching this to the high schoolers. And he told me that he told the high schoolers, he said, there is no better investment than the local church. He said, it's like a mutual fund. Um, you know how a mutual fund is a bunch of different stocks. It's not just all in one place, but it's a bunch of different stocks and, and they grow together in your mutual fund. He said, it's like a mutual fund and, and the local church is involved in hundreds of different ministries here in our own community and different places around the world. So when you give to the local church, it's like an investment in all these spiritual adventures for eternity that happen in Pomona and in the Inland Valley and in different places uh, all, uh, all around the world. Um, it, it, we need to guard against the selfish heart and uh, the grudging heart. And then we need to cultivate the liberal heart, not meaning politically liberal, but meaning a generous heart. Would somebody be willing to just run up here and, uh, and, and give me $50? Does somebody have a $50 bill that I could have just right here? Okay. Oh, thank you, Aaron. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Now, why was Aaron so ready to do that? because I gave it to him before the service began. Aaron, I gave you a $100 bill. What's this 50 right here, you know? So um, uh, it was easy for him to jump up and give it, right? Because it wasn't his. And the same thing, the way we develop the, the liberal, generous heart is by realizing that we are not owners of our stuff. We are merely managers of God's stuff. It says in verse 14, supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. 
Robert Morris says, I was born selfish, but I was born again generous. Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Since the last time we were together in church, I bet you've seen, I've seen a thousand commercials, you know? And they've all been car insurance commercials. So I tell you, everybody, you know, what is that? Half of the commercials I see are car insurance. But you've probably seen a thousand, you've probably seen a thousand things that will try to crush you into conforming into the materialism of this society in which we live. And the only way to be transformed is to be in God's word, reading God's word, meditating on God's word, uh, here in, in church, hearing it preached. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Uh, somebody ran up to me after the first service and handed me this verse, the same verse in the J.B. Phillips translation. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Okay? And there is a natural tendency, everything around us is we're bombarded with conformity to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's a book called Who Really Cares by Arthur C. Brooks. He's not a Christian, to my knowledge. He's not sympathetic to Christians. He is a secular sociologist at Syracuse University. But he did a study to try to find out what was the marker that distinguished generous people from non-generous people. And he went into this totally not expecting what he was going to find. He found that the one thing you can discover that determines if a person in general is generous or not generous is how regularly they attend church. And he found that the people that attended church every Sunday are more generous than those that attend three Sundays out of four. And those that attend three Sundays out of four are more generous than those that attend two Sundays out of the year. And those that attend two are more generous than those that, that attend one. And those that attend once a month are more generous than those that never uh, attend church. And you wonder, where does that come from? I think it comes from if you are regularly under the preaching of God's word, it keeps us from being conformed to the pattern of this world, and it helps us be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we see things long-term rather than short-term. And then we want the grateful heart. He says in verse 15, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. We have to choose between greed or gratitude. Now here's the tricky thing. The first time God does something for me, I am grateful. The tenth time he does something for me, I am entitled And the 11th time, if he chooses not to do it 11 times, straight times, rather than 10 straight times, I'm bitter against God. Hey, where's my blessing? So the first time I'm grateful, but if he keeps doing it and then he withholds it from me, I become entitled and greed takes over. I was 24 years old, brand new pastor, a little country town called Homer, New York. And, uh, and I get this call that I'm supposed to take a bunch of food over to a family in need. Didn't go to our church, but a family in need in the little village of Homer there. And I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be so much fun. This is why you became a pastor, Glenn. I'm going to walk in there with all this food, and they're going to gather around me and be so grateful. And and the mother's going to have tears coming down her eyes. And the little children will grasp my legs and say, thank you, Pastor Glenn, for for bringing this to the, this this is why I went into the ministry. So I got our youth pastor, and we went in, and we knock on the door, and there's a screen door that, you know, we can see through. And the family of six, they're all in there watching TV. And they just kind of don't even acknowledge us. They just look over their shoulder and say, stick it in the kitchen. We walk in. 
Didn't even say bye. Just, just kept watching TV. Stick it over there. I was so irritated. I should have told them this, and I, I should have given them this sermon right then, you know. And, and uh, um, I'm so glad I bit my tongue, because a year later, all six of that family got baptized in our church, okay? But, but I learned something about myself in that, and that is the first time I'm grateful, but after a while, I feel entitled. Robert Morris writes, when we come to the place where we give simply because we have an unselfish, liberal heart of gratitude toward God, we will be well on the road to the blessed life. I just want to let you know, next Sunday, you're so going to be in church. Because we're going to tell you something as a church that in our 145-year history is one of the scariest things we've ever done. It's one of the craziest things we've ever done. It's one of the most awesome things we've ever done. And you're going to want to be here when we announce it. It's going to be crazy. Let's stand for the benediction. If you'd like prayer for anything, the prayer team um, is in the prayer room. And they would just, our prayer partners would just love to pray with you, whatever your need might be. Remember to get a hold of one of these out at the Resource Center. Love you to uh, read that. Encourage you to do so. Here's our benediction from Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.